Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors in over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. Yes, it is, and welcome back. And if it's Monday, it's time for Brandon J. Weikert. He is our guest every Monday doing the international foreign affairs scene. We do some domestic uh, politics as well. His website, theweikertreport.com, and Weikert is spelled W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T. Brandon is also, of course, uh, the author of... Uh, winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, and author of an upcoming book that we talk about from time to time, doing an in-depth uh, analysis on the Middle East and Iran. Brandon, I hope you had a good weekend. Oh, I did. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm unfortunately, I was telling your producer, I just finished doing a spate of interviews for some international press. And I said, you know, it's a shame. The only time they ever want to talk to me is when things are going bad. You know, it's, that seems to be my calling card. When things go bad, call Brandon. <laughs> Let's go, Brandon. Yeah, right? I, that's. I was going to try. I was looking for a joke in there somewhere, and uh, maybe, maybe, maybe that. Okay, here's here's what's going to happen, Brandon. Unless uh, un, unless your publisher doesn't want this, when your next book comes out, if you want a blurb for me, if and I'm not expecting that you would ask, oh, but I if do. I'm going to write what I will write, which will be uh, laudatory. And my last sentence will be, let's go, Brandon. Would that be too much? <laughs> I would love that. If that you... would, that would, that would <laughs> when it comes to that, we'll see. We'll just see. All I right. Well, people, I'm the chief of the Brandon administration. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we could go all day. No, Brandon could, is also could. happy to take your calls at 602-508-0960. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that's his home ad- his home phone number. That's the number you can call while he's here, and he'll take your calls. <laughs> Brandon, there's so much. Um, a bunch of your stuff I want to talk about where you've Great. written at the Asia Times and stuff. But let me start. Can I start? We have a little time together. Can I start with someone yeah. else's work? Um, and I'll tell you why. It's someone you mention often on this show, uh, uh-huh. John, John Mearsheimer. And ah, uh, yeah. And yes. I and and what's interesting is we may have reached some kind of saturation point because yeah. you mentioned him on the show a bunch of times and his analysis uh-huh. of things. And I, you know, I I haven't spent a, as much time as you have in any of these areas, much less much time with Mearsheimer. But one of my I've coll- never met him in person. All right, but you've spent record. time toiling in his yeah. ink, in his words, yeah. in his thoughts. I, yeah. I just haven't, and uh, vaguely familiar with who he is. University of Chicago, right? Am I right about Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And so, anyway, um, a colleague of mine here at the station sent me an article uh, uh, quoting him left and right. So I'm just thinking we have reached saturation point. We have made <laughs> Mearsheimer famous, and. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, he did have a frightening piece asking, or he didn't, someone did, yeah, yeah, Anthony Cowden did, about what to do regarding China. But it summarizes something John Mearsheimer was writing about, and you know the piece, you know his his thought and his thesis. 
it's kind of connected a little bit, too, to some of the other stuff you were writing, especially about lessons of Pearl Harbor, et cetera. We'll get to all that. What is your take on these kind of tripartite ideas Mearsheimer has about how to handle China? What, what's your thought about this stuff? Well, Mearsheimer is a, a traditional international relations scholar. He is a giant in the field. He should be taken seriously. The Chinese certainly take him seriously, as do the Russians. Uh, and the idea of tripolar politics, I'm assuming that's what you're referring yeah, to. Yeah, just a few different Russian options. And yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so uh, unfortunately, that is where we are right now. Uh, we, coming out of the Cold War, had this great advantage in technology and economics and military. And for the last 30 years, we've dutifully squandered all of those things. So much so that the Chinese have caught up with us. The Russians aren't that far behind. Uh, and so now we're going to have to either do one of two things. We're going to have to either go for the insane postulation of fighting the dragon and the bear together, or we're going to have to try to come up with some sort of amenable deal, a sort of a new world order um, that sort of allows for everyone to have their own breathing space. Uh, the problem is with that, and, and I'm more toward that end for now, uh, but the problem with this is, uh, as the, the works of Richard Rosscrantz uh, have proven, uh, tri- as well as uh, Schweller out of Columbia University, uh, tripolar politics uh, is inherently unstable, and it always leads to a great power war. Because basically when you have three powers, in this case the U.S., China, and Russia, all with some differing levels of advantages over one another, they're not perfect equals. You're always going to have two out of three of those powers jockeying against the other. And eventually, you're going to have that sort of unstable, triangular dance. It's going to devolve into a brawl, and it will eventuate with at least two of those three groups annihilating each other, leaving a wounded third party standing. Mm -hmm. And that is basically the setup of the interwar years. Charles Schweller out of Columbia wrote about this. He called it Deadly on Imbalances back in 1999, and he basically did a deep study on how really there were three powers in the interwar years between the First World War and Second World War, industrial powers. It was the United States, the rising Germany, and the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Yes, there was the British Empire, but as he postulates, that was a declining force even by then. The real industrial heavyweights were the U.S., USSR, and the Germans. And basically, we know how that ended. That ended in a massive world war with a lot of bloodletting. And my concern is, until we do what I've been saying, which is looking at the innovation side and doing what we did to the Soviet Union under Reagan, where basically we just out-innovated and eventually outspent the Soviets into oblivion without ever having to fire a shot. Unless we do that now, we are going to be in this position where we have no choice but to negotiate away whatever advantages we still have over China and Russia, and eventually 10, 20, 30 years, 2049 the latest, we're suddenly living in a Chinese-controlled world by default. We have to do the Reagan model. We have to look at high-tech innovation R&D. That gets us out of what John Mearsheim was saying, which is this balancing act. We're going to have to do that for now. We're going to have to do that for now. But we have to have a longer-term strategy, which implies or entails we have to invest bigly in fourth-generation industrial technologies, quantum computing, artificial intelligence, what I talk about, space, 
uh, you know, biotech, all of those things that we talk about in sort of a theoretical sense, but China's actually building these systems out in China. We need to start seriously comp- competing with them the way we competed with the Soviets uh, for dominance in the third industrial revolution in the 1980s. We're not doing that. We haven't been doing it for de- for years now, and China's eating our lunch because of it. And if we're not careful, no matter how much balancing we do against Russia and China, it will lead to a destructive world war that we might not win. Brandon, the, the, this this is this is well summarized, and I appreciate how you put it. The concept of doing what we doing it the way we did it with the Soviet Union, and it is the one that I'm. Um, I'm obviously the most interested in the reason we could win the Cold War without firing a shot, right? As Margaret right. Thatcher put it, I think it was Margaret Thatcher Absolutely. who said that. Yeah, okay, yes. thanks. Uh, the problem I'm seeing in 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 us doing that, I mean, I, I'd love to do it. I wish we could. I wish we would. The problem is we didn't have the ties from the Soviet Union. Right. We didn't have the investment, the financial obligations, the financial connections that yeah. we had that we have with China, that we had with the Soviet Union, which yeah. makes me makes me wonder, do we have an elites problem in American and foreign Absolutely. policy when it comes to this issue? Absolutely. But remember, we had an elite problem, you know, during the late 70s and early 80s. Remember Biden and Ted Kennedy flying over to Moscow yeah. to meet with Brezhnev saying, please don't listen to Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Trust me, he's, he doesn't. So we've always had an elites problem when it comes to communist dictatorships. Uh, you know, the fact that we have Biden as president, who was famous for doing that stunt, going to Moscow to meet with Brezhnev alongside uh, Teddy Kennedy, uh, you know, is very sad. But it doesn't have to be forever. Uh, Trump only lost by like six million votes. Uh, so whoever's running in 2024, we're going to sweep 2022, I think, Republicans. Uh, the ideas of the Trump agenda are still very dominant now, thankfully. Uh, on the right, uh, and whether it's Trump, which I'm, I don't know, uh, or someone else, I think the momentum from the right will be in 2024. Uh, you know, we we can we can fix some of these elite problems the way that Reagan fixed those problems in the 1980s. I know Reagan's considered passe today. And no, it's, it's not. It's a big point because right. yes, he's considered establishment because, elite now. He won then. Right. Let, let me take this break real quick. Let me yeah. pick up on all of that. When we come back, did you ever see the Rocky Horror Picture Show? Yes, when I was younger. All right, I'll remind you of it right now. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. He is the publisher of the Weikert Report, theweikertreport.com. Right right before the break, Brandon, you were mentioning Ronald Reagan and problems with elites and I, I did you want to say did you want to make another point about that vis-a-vis the way we're looking at china these days uh, it was interesting well, I, to me that reagan yeah. is seen you know by dint i suppose of being president i don't know right. as as the elites he wasn't that uh he really no, he ran he against the elites actually yeah i mean make america great again was a reagan right. slogan in 1980 right. that's why trump fixed it in 2016 right uh real quickly what i wanted to say to cap off the Mearsheimer point, oh, yeah. John, Mearsheimer, John Mearsheimer is really talking about doing what Nixon and Kissinger did in the 1970s, where, where we and China 
work together to contain the Soviet Union, and it benefited the two of us. Right. He wants to do that kind of to a degree in reverse with the United States and Russia possibly working to contain China. Uh, Lyle Goldstein at the National Interest doesn't think that's possible. Several other people I know don't think that's possible. I thought it was possible until a few years ago. But bottom line, rather than playing that sort of stodgy, old way of international relations theory, I just want to upend the whole system and do what Reagan did, which is to say, we have no moral equivalence with any of these powers. Why do we even want to get into the muck with them? We have all the stuff we need to succeed and beat everybody right here. We just have to bring that stuff to bear, and that requires good leadership and a faith and a belief in America that we really haven't seen in decades in this country. And so that's why I bring up Reagan. I, I love Nixon, but I really prefer Reagan above all, and we need to get back to that mentality when it comes to sort of that national security and innovation side. I, I I I agree with you on all of that, and and it raises a couple other questions about what is actually possible. Kissinger was right. right. Kissinger, I suppose, was maybe the first triangulist. Everyone says it was Morris or whatever his name was, that political <laughs> theorist for Bill Clinton. Right. Who am I thinking of? More? It doesn't matter. Dick Morris. Dick Moore. D- that's it. Dick Morris. But really, it was Kissinger who had this notion yeah. of triangulation against the Soviet Union. We have a listener here who emailed the question, I've been wondering about the possibility of Russian and China either working together or in tandem against the United States, whether militarily, economically, or in space, though I'm not familiar with them working too much together on anything else. I don't believe this uh, listener writes a strategic alliance is in the cards, but perhaps a tactical alliance. Both nations know we are weak politically, perhaps militarily as well. Yeah. Uh, well, so it's happening already, a, a Russo-Chinese alliance, specifically in space. Uh, Roscosmos uh, has officially signed multiple uh, new deals, cooperation agreements with uh, China, CNAS, China's national space program, and, uh, and they're, rather than doing it with NASA. Uh, so Roscosmos is definitely, Russia's definitely looking at splitting the load with China to get ahead of America in the strategic high ground of space. So that is one area of new budding cooperation. Uh, China and Russia more generally right now uh, are working in tandem. They may not like each other. Historically, they don't. But they have a shared interest in keeping the United States, especially our military power, over the horizon and keeping us out of Eurasia, Europe and Asia, uh, and in, out of their respective or what they think are their respective spheres of influence. And so this is why China's watching very closely what happens in the Ukraine, and similarly why, why Russia is deploying their Pacific fleet uh, in tandem with China's fleet in the Pacific uh, as China ratchets up the pressure on Taiwan. Uh, right now, in the last two weeks, uh, Russia's uh, a task force from Russia's uh, Pacific Fleet went down to Manila and did a port, port call there uh, uh, with a destroyer and some submarines. Uh, they're now starting the Russians to get very serious about the Pacific to augment and support and work alongside the Chinese in ways that probably didn't even really happen in the 60s when the Sino-Soviet pact was in full swing. Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin have a real 
degree of liking toward each other, or at least an, a strategic understanding that whatever their differences are, their real threat is America and keeping American power over the horizon out of their business long enough for them to secure their, their near abroad and then create that, that sphere of influence and then go out from there. Uh, and this is something that Americans have been very slow to realize. I don't know if we can divorce Russia from China. The problem is with Russia, it's so much weaker than China, generally speaking, uh, that once Russia is ensnared by China, it will not be an alliance of equals oh, unless Russia can capture Ukraine and can and c- create the Eurasian Economic Union, which is the Central Asian former Soviet state, as well as Ukraine and maybe some other Eastern former Soviet states in Eastern Europe, under Moscow's control to then, you know, work as a block in tandem with China. Uh, but on its own, Russia, despite its nuclear weapons arsenal, Russia is relatively, on a comprehensive national power level, is much weaker than China. So when, when Putin cooperates with Xi, he thinks he's getting a quick victory by sticking it to America. But what he's doing is slowly ensnaring yeah, Russia in the Chinese Empire. That's interesting. One might say, as has been said about us or in various different places, one might say, again, Russia's playing checkers and China's playing chess, huh? That's right. That's right. Or they're playing Go is what they're doing, the <laughs> Chinese version, where the option, the optimal result in that game is to surround your enemy so much that you can't move anywhere. You have to comply with China, with your opponent's wishes, and that's what China's really doing. Um, Putin's playing Judo, his favorite sport which is all about waiting and reacting mm-hmm. and waiting for that window of opportunity and then exploiting it quickly, rapidly, yep. when your enemy is weak. Yep. But, you know, judo, frankly, doesn't beat Go, because Go is going to ensnare and surround you, even when you don't realize it. That's a great analysis, Brandon. Thank you. Well, thank you. One of the things people don't – I mean, one of the things that this, this analysis that uh, we were talking about uh, offered up was we basically have three choices. One is just status quo and Till destruction. One is become a neo-isolationist about things, and the other is to engage them strongly in an economic war, which they – but I – my concern is we don't have – well, we don't have the military now. It doesn't seem like we're going to. Nope. I mean, the Navy situation between us and China, that is a – I don't think people understand the enormity of that problem. No, they don't. They don't. We are we we our navy, and I've talked to many navy people uh, behind the scenes, behind closed doors. One in particular in California, who is you know currently deployed, but he last November we were talking, or November 2020, and he was telling me. He said, he said, man, he said, you have no idea how bad it is out there right now. He said, we are getting our clocks yeah. cleaned, yeah. and it is bad. And nobody's aware of no it. No one's doing it. And the doing, problem is there's, there's lag time. So whatever we want to do to make more ships, that takes time. Oh, yeah. And that so arsenal of and democracy now, doesn't work at the snap of a finger these right, days. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. This isn't World War II. No. We don't have the latent industrial capability we used to. Ooh, good word. That's all in China. Good word. All right, brother. It's December 6th. You wrote a column on Pearl Harbor. Let's pick up on that when we come back. Yes. Sure thing. Thank you, yep. Brandon. We'll be right back with yep. more from Brandon Weicker. Happy to take your calls if you have questions. Form 
Welcome back to the Seth Liebeson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest, among other things, the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. By the way, books are great holiday Christmas gifts. That would be a cool one. What, 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 who doesn't want to read about winning space and America remaining a superpower? How, what, what's the youngest age you would say could read your book, Brandon, would be interested? Um, I, I, was, I mean, it's meant for adults. It's a serious tract. But I was going to say a, a, a wise 12-year-old could read it. Yes, I certainly, and when I was 12, I would have loved to have yeah. read a book like that. Yeah. Uh, I will say that my six-year-old daughter read some of the uh, early chapters when the editor was sending, uh, you know, things for me to edit. Now, she tried to keep up. She kept up with a large chunk of it. Um, but, you know, I, I would say get them as, as early as you want, as early as you want. They can grow into it. There you go. You can grow into it. And you don't have to read it all at once. <laughs> That's right. Winning That's right. Space. And we'll out, As you know, we're coming out with a second edition, uh, which will be paperback, but it's updated. It's a new intro. Uh, has uh, two new chapters in it, one on China and their hypersonic program, and the other one is on asteroid, uh, defending against asteroids. So, and there's updated information that kind of gets us caught up with where we are right now. Well, that was like the first video game a lot of us played was Asteroid, but it's back in my youth. So, of course, <laughs> we, we started at that at 10, so at least 10, yes. at least 10. Yes. All yes. right, it's December 6th. You have a column in the Asia Times. The U.S. has unlearned the lessons of Pearl Harbor. I don't know if anyone uh, knows what Pearl Harbor is anymore if they're under the age of 40, but tell us about unlearning the lessons of Pearl Harbor. Well, so one of the big lessons was that you should pay attention to how your actions uh, trigger counter-responses from your enemy. So in this case, uh, Roberta Wallstetter, who wrote the definitive, in my opinion, uh, sort of assessment on what exactly happened that caused Pearl Harbor. Uh, I think the, the book was Strategic Warning and Surprise, uh, Pearl Harbor, I think was what it was yeah, called, yeah, if I yeah. remember correctly. Right, right, right. Uh, but basically, Roberta Walter went through uh, years before, uh, tracked everything that happened years before Pearl Harbor. One of the things she found was that things like the FDR ordering the Pacific Fleet to move from San Francisco to Honolulu in the summer of 1940. Right. Uh, things like uh, uh, having U.S. submarines harassing Japanese ships in the Pacific for two years before uh, the actual attacks on Pearl Harbor uh, in an undeclared quasi-war with Japan. Things like, uh, you know, the oil embargo against Japan that basically strangled not only Japan's horrific war machine in the Indo-Pacific, but also uh, basically hurt their economy to the point that the Japanese felt like they had to basically throw a knockout blow against the Americans uh, when the Americans were not suspecting it in order to have a chance at fulfilling what Japanese leaders thought was their, uh, you know, their divine right of conquering uh, the Pacific countries under their new empire, their co-prosperity sphere. Um, you know, th there was a litany of things. I go through it in my, in my work as yep. well as how both the Americans and the Japanese looked at each other through these very racialist lenses where the Americans could not conceive that the Japanese would have out-innovated them because the Japanese were second-class you know, class humans. They were subhuman because they were you know, the yellow peril and all of that. The Japanese similar, similarly looked at the Americans as the white devils and 
we were this decadent and, you know, frivolous people uh, deserving to get knocked out early on, and we would never see it coming. And when they, when they did hit us, we would immediately sue for peace and give away the store. Both sides were wrong. And so while ultimately, as I think I said this in the article, I know I certainly said it when I posted it on social media, certainly the end result, while it was bloody, uh, the fact that the U.S. did step in and was forced to intervene militarily in World War II, I think made the world better at the end of the day. But Pearl Harbor was completely avoidable. Uh, in fact, Japan was telling us, hey, if you guys don't stop these policies, we're going to go nuts because it's hurting us in ways you don't fully understand. And the Americans kept saying, yeah, 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 whatever, you're second, you know, you're, you're not our primary we'll push you around and you'll do whatever we want because you're these, you know, rickety old Japanese, you're not a real power, we have to worry about Europe, so we'll keep you contained and we'll fixate on Europe. Uh, and of course that was not, the, the, the Asian theater became the primary theater of U.S. Forces in many respects during the Second World War. Because yeah, that's right. That that's important to note. That's really important to note. The European hold that thought. Let me take a break, yeah. uh, and we'll come back on that. Let me give the audience um, just a flavor of your piece, and please read it either at the Asia Times or at Brandon Weikert's website, uh, theweikertreport.com. New technology, social political arrangements, and an all volunteer military force have reshaped the U.S. into a country that no one living in 1941 would have recognized, yet the one thing that has remained consistent between 1941 and now is the abject failure of America's leaders to anticipate and avert a surprise attack from a strategic rival. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest, and we're talking about his column, uh, in the Asia Times, also available at his website, the Weikert Report. The U.S. has unlearned the lessons of Pearl Harbor. Uh, Brandon, before we continue, if I can, I always like to give my callers first shot at you. Can I take uh, a call with you real quick? Yeah. Mike in Maricopa, you're on with Brandon Weikert. Mike, go right ahead, sir. Absolutely. Uh, Brandon, Seth, uh, last week I talked with Seth about the concept called fifth-generational warfare, and we ran down, and it has to do with information influence operations, uh, yeah. pointed out some things about uh, on the first round of a new war that the enemy always strikes the first blow like the Japanese did at Pearl Harbor. Right. And then now we've got a similar blow by China in the Wuhan flu because their target was President Trump and the trade imbalance and China was on the ropes. So I, I was just kind of running it by you to uh, hear what you have to say. And uh, because right now, uh, a lot of people, we don't see tanks coming across the border and formations of enemy planes bombing our major cities, but uh, we are at war, and it's the opening yeah. stages, and chances are it's going to go kinetic. But what say you? Thanks, Mike. Well, it's already it's already going kinetic, um, so I have it on, well, I have it on relatively good authority, for instance, that uh, what happened with the uh, Seawolf-class submarine USS Connecticut in the South China Sea was likely not um, the result of crashing the, the submarine into an underwater canyon. Uh, there was some cat and mouse likely going on between that submarine and a Chinese sub because the USS Connecticut 
was spying on the advanced uh, Chinese military facility at Annan Island, uh, and uh, they didn't like that. And so the Chinese subs were probably getting very close to the, the Connecticut. That is what I have heard. Um, so in some ways, we've already gone kinetic. Uh, with the Russians, we've already gone kinetic, right? There is a series of covert actions occurring uh, in Ukraine, in eastern Ukraine, between U.S.-backed Ukrainian forces and Russian-backed Russian separatists uh, who want eastern Ukraine to become part of Russia, just like Crimea became part of Russia in 2014. Um, there's stuff going on in cyberspace. I, back in 2018, I went to a meeting, off-the-record meeting, with uh, the heads of U.S. Cybercom when I still lived in D.C., and I made the mistake of calling it a new Cold War, and he said, son, he goes, Cold War? He said, every day my guys and I get into the office, we're, at, we're in the battlefield with these guys, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran. This isn't a, a, hot, a Cold War, this is a hot war. It's just being done in cyberspace. And so uh, I would argue that we've already gone kinetic on some level, but in terms of, like, actual, you know, military-on-military direct fighting, we are very close. And the information warfare has been going on for at least a decade. Uh, Russia really started this hot and heavy. The Chinese got on and started doing their own uh, perception management uh, over several issues. We now see a very blatant version of it with China trying to redefine democracy uh, as being what they have, which, of course, the Chinese regime is anything but a democracy. Uh, so you have that going on. Uh, you have the attempt by China to purchase or to buy a majority share of American media firms, of, of American corporations that own some of our biggest media conglomerates. Uh, you already see Hollywood changing entire scripts of very popular uh, franchises like the Marvel franchise to accommodate Chinese Communist Party demands. That's a form of information war that they're winning in China. Uh, and so the, the bottom line is, you're right, the world war is already here. It's been going on for quite some time. It's just now we are edging very dangerously close to the breakout of actual hostilities. I would say a year or two, unless we change things dramatically, uh, which is possible, given our system. We can turn on a dime if need be. But if we don't, I think that there's going to be a big catastrophe very soon, whether it be with China over Taiwan or the South China Sea, whether it be with Ukraine and Russia, or whether it be with Iran, something going on with Iran or even North Korea, although that remains to be seen. North Korea is kind of quiet, maybe too quiet. But really the ones to watch out for are those flashpoints of China-Taiwan, uh, Russia, Ukraine, and Iran in the Middle East. And we don't have a, a hold on any of those. And we're losing the non-kinetic phase. And my fear is that that means that the enemy has positioned us right where they want us, where once they decide to go kinetic directly, they're going to be able to clip us in a big way. Smart audience, smart guest. Uh, Larry is another uh, listener who is calling in with a question. Larry, if you can make it super quick, we can work you in here with Brandon, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Seth? You bet. I heard this morning uh, from a pastor at 7.30 uh, that China has a satellite with a long arm, yeah. one big strong arm that they could launch that will 
destroy our communication satellites, right. which could attack our grid. Good, good. Larry Brandon knows exactly what you're talking about. Brandon, go yeah, right ahead, sir. It's called it's called Shijian 21. Uh, it's a co-orbital satellite. Uh, they launched it. China did several weeks ago uh, at the end of November, and it's basically a small, fast satellite that tailgates our large undefended satellites like the Nuclear Command Control and Communication MC3 satellites like the Army's Wideband Global Satcom, like the Navy's Mobile User Objective System, satellite constellations and geosynchronous orbit. That's the highest orbit away from Earth. It's where some of our most sensitive satellites are. Uh, this Chijian 21 tailgates those big American systems and with their arms, can latch on and physically push those satellites of ours out of their orbit, sending them crashing back to Earth. We don't have spares on hand. It would be very hard for us to replace those lost capabilities, which would basically render our forces on Earth, at land, uh, at sea, in the air, in cyberspace, deaf, dumb, and blind, which would give China a real strategic window of opportunity to run roughshod over Taiwan, over the South China Sea, or northern India. It is not a good situation, and we have no active countermeasure or defense against that kind of co-orbital satellite attack. The Russians are also, they have a fleet of those things in Earth orbit as well. The Russians do. The Chinese are catching up to the Russians in this way. Uh, we are not well defended, and no one's minding the store, and it's a big problem because our enemies think we're weak, and that's when the bad stuff starts happening to America. Brandon, that's the, thank you for saying it and explaining it. I have one more small. Can I keep you one more small? My last yeah. short, because you said something yeah. uh, on your column, and it's just too cool not to ask you about. Let me set it up right here: hypersonic vehicles, ASAT weapons, cyber war, information war, electromagnetic war. I, so th that's how we're going to do this if we do it. Can you respond on those uh, issues yeah. when we come back? Real quick, I'm yeah. Seth Liebson. He's Brandon Weikert. We will be right back. Brandon Weikert uh, ate his Wheaties today. He does every day, actually. Um, but, Brandon, thanks for staying with us. You say yeah. something provocative, which will be a nice thing to end on here. Provocative, and I, and I agree with it. The solution is not to court warts, to delay it. Do you want to end on that yeah. note? Yeah. So, like I said, if we dedicate the kind of funds that we've been talking about this hour, like a trillion dollars minimum, to actual like quantum computing, electromagnetic uh, defense technologies, uh, cyber warfare capability space, the things that we talk about all the time. We spend a decade building out those systems. We will, and we delay, delay, delay the inevitable shooting war. We'll avoid a shooting war entirely, because by the end of that decade, I firmly believe that our country will have done to China and even Russia what we did to the Soviet Union under Reagan in the 80s. If we continue on the path that we are on right now, where we talk endlessly about the threat and we talk endlessly about potential solutions but take no realistic action to actually implement those solutions, we will be in a shooting war very soon, and it is not guaranteed that we will win that war. And that's where we're at. That's where we're at. Brandon Weikert, thank you. If there's one thing we need to learn, not learn, remember about the day that lived in infamy, what is it? that we're not learning now? What is the one thing we should have learned and aren't learning now? Take your enemies seriously. When they tell you who they are, trust them. Right. 
When they tell yeah. you who they are, trust them. 60 Minutes yesterday did a thing on China. I don't usually watch it. I happened to. And they quoted this prof- professor. Uh, I, I don't know whether to trust what she says or not, but she did say, interestingly, that President Xi envisions mo- a modern socialist economy. Every part of that, those three words should, <laughs> should scare you. Modern and socialist and economy. Look at what they're doing. Look how they're doing it. And look at what we're doing or not. And doing, the scary right? thing is, at least half of our leaders probably are nodding in agreement. Yeah, that's what we I want know here. Uh, that <laughs> that is. We'll pick up on that theme a bit more next uh, next yeah. week if we can, Brandon. Okay. Uh, yeah. I I want to. I kind of just want to say Merry Christmas, but the problem is, I'm going right. to talk to you like several times before that. So right. right. How about well, I just say Baya <laughs> con Dios. We'll yeah, talk to you next week. Until we meet again. Until we Swain. Goodbye. All right, Brandon Walker. <laughs> God bless you, sir. I'll say it again. If you want to know what the headlines are going to be six months from now, listen to Brandon Weikert today. We'll be right back. The great Tevi Troy coming up. Turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525.